Hello and welcome to part one of our season preview here on Reds Unrestricted. I'm your host, David Comerford, and today I'm going to be speaking to fans of Liverpool's big six rivals to gauge their feelings ahead of the new season. This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to bigheadsmedia.com for more great podcasts. Well, there's only one place to start, and it's with the reigning champions, Manchester City, who finished only a point ahead of Liverpool in last season's Premier League. And so my first guest is Howard Hocken, who's a Man City blogger and podcaster. So, Howard, probably the main talking points around City ahead of the new season is the arrival of, of Erling Haaland. How smoothly do you think things are going to go for him? Because obviously we know that City will have to adapt to him and he'll have to adapt to City, you know, much maybe in the same way um, that Liverpool and Nunez will have to sort of cooperate early on. Should we be anticipating kind of huge numbers from him this season, given that it is kind of the combination on paper of one of the world's best strikers and arguably the most sort of dangerous creative side in the world too? Yeah, I mean, it's weird having a striker in the side for starters, so there will have to be some adaptation for sure. But I think with both the strikers at Liverpool and City have picked up, that even with a period of adaptation, I think the numbers will be pretty healthy. I mean, very healthy. So I could see a, a situation where Haaland's got, I don't know, nine goals after the first 12 games, and that'll probably be perceived as a failure in some parts of the media. We've been with that strike now for two years and we've been playing false nines and obviously we have to change the way we play and we may be less creative because of it because obviously to play a striker you're taking out another midfielder. There has to be a period, yes, you can't just come in, uh, slot goals in and there's been a big upheaval in the squad itself. I, I don't think it's just about Haaland to be honest, I think it's about the squad. So I think there will be a period but honestly I think the goals will start flowing immediately. I mean... It was hardly a stellar debut against Liverpool. But even in that game, he he could have had two goals easily. And when it starts clicking, then you have to think, you know, and that's against Liverpool, the best, the hardest opposition City can face. So I, I think there will be a period of adaptation. But once he gets motoring, I think the goals are going to flow pretty easily, to be honest. Yeah, I think you're right about the community shield. It, it's, I think it's something the commentator said at the time. In fairness, it's like, you know, you can kind of look at it and say the chances that he's actually getting, you know, the quality of those is really encouraging in a way because someone of his ability isn't going to miss them as much as it was kind of, you know, yeah. obviously funny for us at the time, externally. Yeah. Um, but like you mentioned there, it's not all about Haaland and City have signed a couple of other players too in uh, Julian Alvarez and Calvin Phillips. Um, just a couple of questions about them. Do you think Alvarez may be flown under the radar? Obviously, we saw him score on kind of what you'd say is his unofficial debut in the Community Shield. And uh, what do you make of that, Philip Steele, too? Yeah, I've been really impressed, to be honest. He's, he's one of them... As fans, we tend to judge players by how much they cost. So if we'd signed him for £80 million, we'd have huge expectations, but because he signed for under £20 million, And, of course, he's come from South America, and, and let's be honest, we're not all watching South American football every week. Uh, and it, it's probably quite rare for you know, a top talent to still be there at the age of 21, 22, you know, and not have moved to Europe already. I honestly, I think I've fast-tracked my expectations a bit in the last week or two. He's obviously, he's had half a season, just played half a season. So he's not had the rest of the normal squad. And I expected him to be a prospect, basically, that would get some game time. And if he's going to make it in the Premier League and be a huge success, I really was looking at the 23-24 season. But looking at the small sample size of what he's done in pre-season, I think there's a lot more to him than I realised. Uh, uh, we love an Argentinian player anyway. Perhaps the Premier League does itself. But I was most surprised by his work rate intensity and just general passing. Uh, we've lost Gabriel Jesus, who was vital to us pressing uh, from the front. And to see him doing that is a huge bonus. So, yeah, often, obviously, Haaland will take all the attention uh, because he's Haaland. But I think Alvarez is actually going to get plenty more, a lot more game time than I first anticipated when we signed him. There's often the way when you sign someone at City because of the City group that you think, 
oh, we'll probably sign him and just loan him out to Girona or somewhere and we won't see him again or not for two years. I think it was pretty clear immediately that this we had signed this yeah, Alvarez to be in the squad. But I still didn't think he'd have a big uh, a big impact at first. But he seems to have settled so well that, yeah, I think he could be one of the surprise hits of the Premier League next season. And, um, well, obviously, we saw Gabriel Jesus come from South America to uh, Man City. Um, and he was, you know, pretty much straight off the bat, was um, scoring a decent amount of goals. So mm. we'll see if Alvarez can, can replicate that. But, um, yeah, just um, on the third and final sign and Calvin Phillips, one of them where it seems more so aimed at depth than improving the first team. Yeah, it is. Well, basically, obviously, Fernandinho's gone now and he was really showing his age last season, which is fair enough. He's 37, so I wouldn't expect... Uh, the Fernandinho of six years ago to be uh, playing for City. I, the fact is, he's not. I don't think he's there just as cover, and I don't think you spend forty million pounds for that because, quite simply, Rodri cannot just play every game. So I think there's a percept. There was a perception of, amongst a few City fans at first, or why are we paying that just for someone as backup to Rodri? But not only will it allow Rodri not to play every single game. I could actually... There's a possibility that City change the way they play next season. Now, part of that was uh, I factored in Cucurella coming, uh, having overlapping fullbacks and using with that way. And if we did change the way we play, you know, partly, of course, due to Harlan being inside, we could play both Rodri and Phillips themselves. So it's a it's a nice little signing because obviously his, his rise has been well documented as in the England side. I think you know for, for like forty-two million or whatever, it's it's a good value signing. I wouldn't want him to be at City just to be a backup player. Yeah, I expect him to be part of the first team squad, and he's not there to to clone Fernandinho basically because Rodri now does the job that Fernandinho used to, even if he's a slightly different player. He's there to give us options basically, and I think he again he will get plenty of game time when Pep Guardiola wants to do something different in games. Yeah, I think, you know, with the stage that he's at in his career and the options he probably would have had in terms of making a move, you'd think that he's been told by Guardiola that he's going to get chances to play kind of independent of what's happening with, with Rodri and that kind of rotation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can imagine at a midfield with those two players in uh, being very, very secure from a defensive point of view, certainly. Um, but one sort of player you mentioned there who actually looks like it won't be coming City is, is Kukurea, and that kind of leads into a question about the only area that might be looked at with City and you know viewed as a potential weakness, uh, kind of the left-back department. Um, so obviously City look like they've walked away from that deal, re- refusing to pay um, the price tag, which I personally think is a bit strange in a way. You know, we've seen... Liverpool, for example, have agreed to potentially pay an awful lot of money for Nunez because he was their top target and, you know, to replace Mane and fill that gap in the squad. And they thought, you know, we'll pay up. I'm surprised that City haven't just kind of met their Brighton's valuation um, on that one. But is it a concern? You know, I think I saw reports today that um, City are in talks for um, Sergio Gomez at uh, Anderlecht, but he seems like quite a bit of a, a step down. Obviously, quite a young player, but um, not on the Kukurea level. So, is if there is anything that worries you going into the new season, is it that kind of area? Oh, oh yes, <laughs> absolutely. We seem to have this absolute aversion to buying left backs that I just don't understand. Uh, the the player you mentioned, Adelaide, will probably be loaned out to Girona. <laughs> funnily enough, as I, I joked about it earlier, I don't think he's he's the one. If he comes, he's one of two. I'm still confident we'll sign someone, but I've been saying that every summer for the past four years. We don't have a left-back at the, at the club. Now, I know Cancelo plays there and has been brilliant, but he's a right-back who plays at left-back. Now, he can still play there, but we still only, now that Zinchenko's gone, have got two full-backs at the club. So we have to sign someone. The, I mean, Liverpool fans will laugh at this, at what I'm about to say, but City do walk away when their quoted prices, they think he's too much. They also spend tons of money, but they will only spend what they think is fair value for a player. And they've walked away loads of times before, like Maguire uh, and many others of Koulibaly in the past as well. Uh, and I, I'm a bit surprised myself. 
having said that, it seems now that Chelsea with them that Brighton have now come back and said they want more than £50 million. And he's not worth that. So I really like Kukurea. I think he'd be great for City. But he's probably not worth that much. He'd be like the second most expensive fullback in you know world football, I think. So because City have taken in lots of money, for, you know, three players have gone out, they've sold lots of youth players. On this occasion... I'd rather they'd have abandoned the principles and just paid what was needed. So I do kind of agree with you. Because it, he is, from what I've read, he's City's first uh, choice, for well, Pep's first choice of who he wants. And if you got him over the line and kept Bernardo Silva, it would have been a great summer in the transfer market. And we wouldn't even have spent much money for for the net spenders who love to pour over the figures. So, yeah, it's, it's a bit... It's a bit disappointing. Brighton obviously are entitled to ask for whatever they want for a player. Uh, he wants to come to City. Or, and he now wants to go to Chelsea, no doubt. So I wish they had paid money, but I understand why they don't. City love a release clause. When there's a release clause, they'll pay it. Uh, but when there isn't, uh, they tend to stick a value on a player. And if it's not, if the other club wants more, they just walk away. It's what they've always done. It served us well. But on this occasion, I'd rather they'd probably abandon those principles just as a one-off. But we have to sign someone. For, I mean, we're going into the season. We've totally undercooked in that area. But obviously, there's still over three weeks of the transfer window left. City have to sign a top-class fullback uh, to make this squad more complete because it is, quite simply too small at the moment. I think with the, the sort of Cucurella thing, and you are right to kind of point out that it, it does follow a pattern in a way, really. It might be a case that, and I think we've seen this with Newcastle now, you know, given that the kind of the source of the income and the external perception, City are wary of just always paying a club's demands yeah. for a player and then feeling like they're going to be held to ransom in the future. So there might be that kind of strategic element to it. Um, yeah, that's what United do, basically. So Yeah, uh... exactly. They just sort of go in all guns blazing. But um, one of the players you mentioned there, again, and part of the problem really with left-back um, is, is Zinchenko. And he has been one of sort of three uh, high-profile departures so far, I'd say, obviously alongside Gabriel Jesus mm-hmm. and Raheem Sterling. Have you been surprised? Not so much that, that maybe that those players left, even though, they are kind of all pretty important in their own ways. But is it especially surprising to see them join teams that, I mean, maybe can't compete with City directly, but are like big six rivals still? Yeah, I think selling Sterling to Chelsea was the biggest surprise of all. Because I'm sure in the past we wouldn't entertain that. I think it shows how the market's changed in a way. that we're Not prepared to sell to Chelsea, but that was his option. So... I'm not sure how many other clubs there was an option to sell Ryan Sterling for, for that amount of money, and how many clubs would have taken on his wages. So it was a case of, we sell to Chelsea or he'll run his contract down. So yeah, there has been a change in strategy in a way. I don't know if it's a Premier League-wide thing where players will move between top six clubs. I mean, I can't see that moving between City and Liverpool. And maybe United, you could add United to that trio. But yeah, uh, I know a lot of City fans, or quite a few are a bit perturbed that well, you strengthen rivals. I don't. I think Arsenal could be on the up, but be, it's impossible to call. But they're not. A, they're not a title rival, are they? Chelsea, I thought were, but who knows what's going to happen to them in the future? So yeah, it has been weird, but I think it reflects the fact that there's just a reduced market of where these players can go. I think Gabriel Jesus would have had more offers, but uh, abroad definitely. But City obviously aren't that bothered and don't think that it's going to come back and bite them on their behind to let them go. But you had two players, front players, Jesus and Sterling had a year left on their on their contract. And Zinchenko, well, he's not a left back again. So uh, and eventually you've got get to the point in his career, you know, he's in tears leaving, but he's got to make a tough decision. He's a midfielder and I I'll be surprised if he goes to Liverpool and uh, goes, sorry, goes to Arsenal and starts playing at left back, though with Tierney's injury record, maybe he will. But that's why he's gone there to play in the position he, he's best at playing in. So it's weird having three players like this leaving one single summer. And it's a bit worrying as well because it's a big transition for City and a big refresh. And you talk about Haaland getting him into the side, but just generally 
the changes in the squad will mean there's going to be a period of adaptation for this squad, definitely. I think you're bang on, probably, certainly about the Sterling deal, and there might be something that changes in the coming years in terms of the level of money that's in the Premier League and the yeah. money, the, the wage levels means that there's a kind of a limited market for, for these players and with the alternative obviously being, you know, selling them on a free, which City wanted to avoid. Um, just one last one, and uh, we'll be asking this to, to all of our guests. Where do you think uh, City will finish this season if you had to make a prediction? Do you think it'll be just as close maybe as it was last season between the top two? And if you are back in City to, to win the title again, what is it that you think separates them from Liverpool? Uh, very little. Yeah, I think it'll be a two-horse race again. I just think Chelsea's scattergun approach cannot all come together and make them title challenges in, in the coming season. But with Chelsea, you just never know. They're so up and down, who knows? I think it'll be really close again, yeah. I think Mane leaving, if, if Salah had gone or just wound down his contract, he'd have had big problems but him staying plus getting Nunes in. And, you know, someone like Carvalho as well coming in and I think you've got a settled squad there. It's going to be very close. I've got to back City because, you know, I'm a City fan. They've won four out of the last five and they've pulled, and that, the experience of doing it season after season might be the big difference. And ultimately, we still scored, without a proper striker, we scored more goals than anyone last season and conceded fewer. But ultimately, if Haaland gets into his rhythm and he's got the World Cup off as well so he gets a month off then then I mean he obviously is one of the generational talent as a striker and if he hits 30 goals plus that small thing could make the difference in the title race for me So we'll move on now to the team who finished third last season and that was Chelsea and for their perspective I'm joined by George Priestman a football writer and Chelsea fan So let's start with the signings that Chelsea have been able to complete um, Kaladu, Koulibaly and Raheem Sterling. How much do you rate those moves? Yeah, I think they're great signings. I mean, I've, I've wanted Koulibaly for about five, six years, really. He's kind of been like the dream centre-back signing in my eyes. Um, so to get him now, um, it, it's great. Yeah, because he's, he's 31, he's, he's in great nick. Um, plays, you know, plays a lot of games on a regular basis. He's, he's still such a beast, still very physical. And I think he Bruised our defence after we lose, we lost Rudiger and Christensen. So him coming in was great. And then you, you look to the top of the pitch, you know, the signings like Ziyech, Werner, Pulisic haven't really worked out up top. And um, we need someone who, who can score goals and be direct and add a bit of experience as well. Because all of our front line, when you looked at it, um, you know, we're all under 25 bar um, Ziyech. So we need some experience. And, we, and we've signed two really good players. Um we just need some more. Yeah, um, and I'll come on to that in a sec. I think the interesting thing with, you know, Koulibaly and Sterling really is that they're almost kind of short-term moves. In a way, you've got obviously Koulibaly being 31, like you say, and Sterling 27 sort of in what you would kind of conventionally say will be his prime. And it's like, it's kind of designed towards instant impact really from both of them because they're kind of known quantities. And Koulibaly, I think you're right, is... It's one of them where he's basically been slightly under the radar as one of the best centre-backs in Europe for a while. People probably assume that he wasn't going to get this this big move, but it's kind of materialised now. And I'm sure certainly for a couple of years, you'll get some very strong service out of him. But to come on to, the, I guess, the last thing you said there about um, deals that still need to be done. We've seen like Todd, Todd Bowley has been in charge of recruitment, basically, because uh, Marina Granovskaya, um, actually left the club and, and that seems to be kind of her role to, to do sort of the dealings before then. Um, do you think it's been a bit messy because of that kind of strange situation? Because obviously we've seen what happened with, with Koundé recently, but and also, you know, you weren't able to get Rafinha as you tried to, and there's been a couple of other targets that haven't quite materialised as well. No, yeah, definitely. It's I didn't expect him to be so hands-on, to be honest. Um, I thought he'd give money. I think he'd definitely give money because he, he wanted to make an instant impact, and um, which, which he did get. But then I didn't know he was going to be so hands-on with, with what's happened. So, yeah, maybe. Maybe it was a touch of that. But the whole market's been so messy, especially if you deal with Barcelona and obviously the 
so, so many issues there and everyone you know the, the signings they've made I don't know how they've made them um I was really I really wanted Kunde as well so um <clears throat> that was a bit of a tough one to take but I guess it's a bit weird with targets as well because we've been we haven't been able to shift a lot of players we, like you know your Deadwood types like your Ross Barclays and, and Batchy Wise we've We've not got rid of them yet, so we're still waiting on some some, some score space. And I, I I would like to you know reinvent the attack again, but you know we spent big money a couple of years ago, so you know we'll, you get criticism for that. But maybe rightly so, maybe they, they weren't weren't the right signs at the time. But we need to get rid of a couple of players before we can bring them in at the top end of the pitch. But at the other end, you know, we just need to bring them in, um, especially at centre back. Yeah, and I think that one. Um... Well, I say that seems to be the priority. Obviously, when we're recording this, I think it's come out today that there's um, talks for for Kukulea, which is a bit of an interesting one, given that obviously you already yeah. have um, already have Joe Well at the club, but um, maybe he's got a bit of sort of versatility there that that he showed last season. I think with the sort of Todd Todd Bowley side of it, it's like he seems to be going after. You know, there doesn't seem to be too many sort of bold decisions getting made in terms of who he's targeting. We've seen a lot of Prem players get targeted. You know, there was even talks over Ronaldo, like he's going for really proven players. And obviously that mm-hmm. that can work quite well, into, you know, being like a known quantity, like I say, but also maybe that's making the, the negotiations a bit more difficult possibly. But I guess we can kind of touch on Cucurella here because what is it that you think Chelsea need? Obviously, you've already said another centre-back. This sort of striker situation is a bit interesting. Like you say, you've spent pretty much £150 million on two strikers. Neither of them have proved to be the solution. Are you happy with Havertz to be the man there, or you know, do you think that again, if ideally there would be uh, another option? And and like I say, what do you think about about Cucurella and and the midfield? I suppose. Um, I like Cucurella because one, he doesn't get to go to City, and you know, obviously that makes him a little bit weaker because of Solzhenko. Obviously, um, he played in a back. You know, he played left back. He played left wing back, he played left centre back in a three. So he has his versatility. You know, we we desp- that would be, that would be brilliant to get him in to cover those three positions. We could play we could go to a back four. We could, you know, we could be a bit more fluid in attack. We probably I think we'd score more goals if we moved to four three three. Just by nature of it being you know the most fluid formation and it, it'd suit our midfield. And I think you get we, we create more chances. And I think the likes of Havertz will take him. That's why I think we should stick him in up top. But you have Broho as well as a backup. I like him a lot. I hope he, it seems like Tuchel's bring keep him in the squad this season. Now there was a little bit of a worry for about two weeks of pre uh, of preseason where it looked like he was going, but obviously he's he's made the right decision to keep him around because we are light up there and it, you know we'd have to spend more money and then you know the whole thing starts again. So to have someone come through the academy as well and we, we, we had a, he had a good little spell at Southampton. You know he, he run a lot of, lot of good defenders ragged. At, you know. We went past like Canate, you know, took Maguire down. A lot of people that he, you know, it's his first season in, in the Prem and he, he he looked pretty good and scored a lot of, quite a lot of goals. So considering how inexperienced he is, so I think up top we probably won't sign anyone. I, I I would like to bring in Depay though. That was another one. I I, I think Barca, he doesn't seem settled at Barca. They've obviously signed Lewandowski. I think it makes sense of his versatility, and it's, he's someone that Tuchel would like as well because obviously he's very very technically gifted and I think he would suit the system. So I, I don't know about the attack. We're, we are very focused on the defence. Midfield, I think we're set because obviously Conor Gallagher come back and that really adds an extra, you know, like that, how many games he could play a season. So it's mainly just defence for now. Uh, that's I think well, if we get that sorted though, we might move on to, to something else. Yeah, it's interesting really. You've got sort of Gallagher and Breuer coming in and like, Obviously, they've been your players, but I suppose they do feel like new signings, given that they can compete for quite a lot of minutes. And obviously, both of them, especially Gallagher, really stood out last season as young players yeah. sort of with their own moves. But to um, move it maybe slightly away from transfers and just sort of a more general kind of question, um, we've seen Tuchel make comments about a lack of kind of commitment from his players, you know, saying there's a lot of them who want to leave. And he seems quite frustrated that Chelsea maybe haven't made that step that he expected to compete with, you know, Liverpool and Manchester City. And it, it's maybe seemed from the outside, like there's some sort of crack starting to emerge, like we would typically <laughs> see with a Chelsea manager. So what do you think, like, the atmosphere is like around the club before the new season? We've seen it all before, haven't we? It feels it feels very similar. Um, 
But you'd like to think that the relationship he's got with Todd Bowley seems to be really strong. The fact that they spent a lot of time together with these transfer targets and we've we've sort of levelled up our targets in, in quality again from the likes of Ake and and, and uh, De Ligt up to, you know, Cucurella and, and other players as well, you know, of higher standards. So uh, we're doing... We're doing a little bit. We're doing a little bit better now. You know what I mean with with Todd Bowley though. It's it's, it's been exciting because the as you know, there's been a lot of money being thrown around and targets, and, it, and that sort of keeps the fans on side. Um, I, I don't think he would sack a manager in his first season. I, I don't think he would be that that callous. And I feel like with the relationship they've got together, I think he would give him the, the benefit of the doubt if things did start to go amiss. But like I said, I mean, we are. It's tough because we still, we, if we get the players in, I mean, the season starts this week. So, I mean, they're, they're going to be coming in a couple of games in the season, which isn't ideal. Um, I, I, I like the idea of getting the signings in for pre-season, getting them embedded into the squad. And then they're much better. They're much of a sort of a, a running start when when they get to the, the start of the season. Um, which if we're not getting that with these players and then we have a couple of bad results and then you get the, the money being spent combined with the you know, poor on the pitch, then... Then you could start seeing the uh, the, the usual stuff that the papers would be be brutal, um, and then you get and then I imagine you get to that Christmas period, which is where it used to go wrong for so many uh, Chelsea managers. And then that's when I say you there, if you're gonna say when you'd be sacked, I'd stick a couple of quid on December or, or early Jan if that was what you wanted. <laughs> well, it kind of reminds me of um, the summer ahead of Conte's second and last season. Yeah, um, an awful window. Yeah, and he oh, seemed to be re- really frustrated um, at that time. So that's the year. That's the year you got all our targets. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we did. Um, <laughs> Literally, exactly all of them. All the mon- uh, Fabinho over Bakayoko, and yeah, he's a tough one. That. <laughs> yeah, and then I think the uh, was it was it that summer as well that um or, or maybe the following Van Dijk summer. Well, that, yeah, Van Dijk. And there's also I think you wanted Allison as well. Um, he did, and, yeah. And Kepa, which <laughs> is a, is a bit of a sliding doors moment that one. Um, yeah, it is. And just one last question, really. Um, and we're, we're asking we're asking everyone this: where where do you think Chelsea will finish? Obviously, it's hard to say now before the windows finish, but at this moment, um, obviously we saw last season the gaps to the top two was 18 points. Is that going to get bigger, or do you think are you confident that Chelsea will be able to make quite significant inroads into that? I don't know. I don't think we're gonna. I don't think we're gonna push them close again. I think that you can see the gap being the same again. As of right now, I'm. I'm very. I, I mean, I'm still confident we get top four because I mean we've signed Stone and Kulabali, who are two brilliant players, and people forgetting that those two signs are really going to make an impact. And Chilwell's going to be back as well, which can really help. Really help us uh, get our balance back, which we've lacked. And um, adding Sterling at the top, I think. I think it could start to click. And if we do that, I think we're better than. I know Arsenal have improved. And I think it's going to be interesting with them and Tottenham. But every time we play these teams, we played Tottenham last year on a really good run. Uh, and we went to theirs ground and we, we battered them 3 0. And I thought, I never thought we were going to lose that game, even though they're in they're in good form at the time. And I think it's the same with Arsenal. They've had a couple of good wins over us recently. So we'll have to we'll have to come back strong this season. But I think between us two, yeah, we I think we I think we can get the beating of them. And I still think a couple of those teams, if they have an, like an injury or two, then the depth isn't as good as as people making out. So, whereas I think we do have that depth now with, with bringing someone like Conor Gallagher back and the signings we're probably going to make. So, yeah, I'm feeling confident. It's like when it's like when everyone said we were going to finish like sixth or seventh when when Frank came in and we had the transfer ban. Uh, I still said from minute one that we'd finish top four, um, even top three potentially. And then we top, you know, we we were top three for a, what we got in the end. We got top four, and it was it could have been top three. So. I still fancy us with this squad. It's a brilliant squad. Um, but like you say, there's, there could be a, a sort of moment where it could start to go wrong. And then that's when you worry. Um, and then especially if Arsenal and Tottenham start to start to catch you know, catch fire and and then we see where see if they can compete um at the top of the table. So I, I I'm gonna I'm gonna stay confident. I think top four, right now fourth. Um if we can get silence, I'm confident we could finish third again. And we're now going to turn our attention to Spurs, who finished in fourth place last season. And so I'm speaking to Daniel Huggins, a Tottenham fan who works in the sports media industry. So, Daniel, obviously Tottenham have been one of the most impressive teams uh, in the transfer market, really. And 
with this spending spree, do you look at it as really the most? Because it's not very Daniel, you know, Levy like it in, in recent years. I'd say. Do you think it's kind of an attempt to maximize the time that the club has with Conte? Because I was looking through yesterday, and I saw that he hasn't actually spent more than two years at any of his clubs. So who knows how much longer he's going to be around for? It feels to me like a kind of win now approach has been adopted. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Levy must have looked at Liverpool and Man City and what they've done with Guardiola and Klopp and thought, we've got the resources now, we've got the stadium, we've got the uh, facilities to be able to maintain this kind of level of coaching and be able to stick around with the big boys. So now it's time to put our faith within a coach to take advantage of um, everything in the background of the club and be able to really um, build build something special together with a group of lads that have, well, for most of them, have been together for a long time now. Um, some really, we've already got two world-class players in Son and Kane, so now's the time now for Levy to really put together um a squad capable of challenging for trophies with Conte. And I think he's seen um, that Conte, uh, heard from Conte that he's not willing to accept mediocrity and he's looking to build something special. He's looking to challenge for trophies, but without signings, without reinforcements or strengthening the depth of the squad, challenging for trophies was always going to be something of an unlikelihood, something that was improbable without that kind of strengthening in the summer window. So, yeah, definitely. I think Levy's looked at the situation and thought now's the right time to really back the club. Enoch as well. Um, so, yeah, the future, this se- particularly this season, but hopefully the future with Conte beyond the season, um, hopefully there is one to start off with and hopefully it's bright. Yeah, well, he's... Obviously, a world-class manager, and there was a lot of comments he made sort of last season indicating that he wasn't going to be happy if there wasn't that ambition from the club, and those calls have clearly been heeded. With with six new players coming in, and, and of those six, which would you say excites you most? And also, kind of on the flip side, are there any of those players that you may be a bit unsure about? The one that excites me most for the this season in particular is Perisic. Um, having seen him in pre-season, he, people, I mean, people have been looking at his age and thinking, has he still got it? Is he washed up? Is he, is he finished? Looking at him, he, he's always had this natural fitness about him. The older he's got, it hasn't affected him. He's still got the pace. He's still got the athleticism. And he is a very Conte signing particularly for the system he plays, particularly for the left wing back role. He's perfect for the system. And just just from the little bits we've seen from him in pre-season, even having carried an injury going into pre-season, he looks so sharp and he looks so ready. And that type of caliber, that caliber of player is something that Spurs haven't really brought in since, I would say, uh, Rafa van der Vaart back in 2010, that, that you know, that level, the pedigree um, of players. So it is very exciting to have a tough player like Perisic, regardless of whether or not he's 33. It was always imperative for Conte to get that type of player in um, with the experience of winning the biggest trophies of the lot, the Champions League, um, winning domestic trophies, winning league titles. Perisic for me is going to be a very exciting player for Spurs this season. The one that I'm not particularly too sure about, I mean, it's very easy to say Richarlison, um, but I think for me, Richarlison is an interesting one. It's risky because we've got two players within the academy, Dane Scarlett and Troy Parrott, who we've loaned out this season both of whom we have tipped to have huge futures at the club. Richarlison, as a 25-year-old, 60 million, it suggests that the future is Richarlison. Whether he's going to be a squad depth type player or 
uh, challenge for a starting space. It, it's strange to me that we haven't gone for someone potentially with a bit more experience, uh, maybe a similar type of player to Richarlison, striker, left winger. Richard, there's no doubt Richarlison fits into the Antonio Conte system, but you know, will he halt the progress of Dane Scarlett? Will he halt the progress of Troy Parrott? Two players, Troy Parrott at number nine, Dane Scarlett, who's been utilised before by us and at youth academy level um, on the left, which is the area which we must imagine Richarlison will occupy when he comes off the bench or starts. Um, so, yeah, that I'm not particularly unhappy with the signing. I think it's a great signing for our squad depth now and he can really help us this season um, just in terms of Will it halt the progress of two stars we've labelled before as, well, Dane Scarlett in particular, a generational talent? Um, what what will happen there? Will their progress be hindered because we've invested so much into a player who we can't foresee walking into our starting eleven and taking a starting role? Yeah, I definitely think that there are question marks around that one and. I agree also with what you said about Perisic as well. I think that is potentially already looking like an underrated sign. And in some respects, maybe because there wasn't like a huge transfer fee attached or anything like that. Um, but obviously, you know, six new players um, will play varying squad roles. But are there any areas that you look at and think they still need to be addressed in kind of the time that remains in the window? Um, or is the squad looking pretty much complete and any further signings will kind of just be a luxury? Um, in order to really close the gap with Man City and Liverpool, I'd say the particular area that needs to be addressed is the centre-back spot. I know we kind of became a lot less leaky towards the end of the season. Uh, for me, Ben Davis was the most improved player in the second half of the season, perhaps in the entire league, because I haven't seen such a player go improve that dramatically, go from a uh, bit part left back who's on the transfer list not needed to such an integral part of the team I haven't seen that type of improvement for such a long time but when you look at Eric Dyer in defence he's still got a mistake in him and you think that every game you think that when he's on the ball you're one straight pass away from giving um, giving an opposition team a uh, very clear-cut chance on goal. Um, without every team now in the Premier League, I, I can't think of a single team that does not have a clinical forward. Even the newly promoted teams have clinical players at their disposal, and you can't afford to make those kind of mistakes at the top flight. So Eric Dyer, even though he was very solid defensively, tackling-wise, uh, making interceptions, blocking the ball, his ball-playing ability, there is just that question mark in it. And with rumours going around with Milan, Milan Skriniar from Inter Milan um, and Bastoni earlier on in the window, Paul Torres, Vardiol. I think that's an area that we'll probably look to improve next season as opposed to this season. But if we were to really make a title challenge, which some people have asked for, I don't think it's possible this year. But if we were to really close the gap of Man City and Liverpool, that area in particular for me, is one that needs addressing the central center, the the central defender in the three man defence for sure. Yeah, and I th- I think you know the standard that's been set. You can't really afford to have any kind of weaknesses at all, or even like very slight gaps. If you are going to be able to win the league, I mean, you have kind of already answered this last question, but I guess I'll just get hear hear from you a bit more on it. Do you think Spurs? Can you know maybe if they do make that sign, can Spurs genuinely be a dark horse in the title race this season, or are you still very much thinking about right? Let's just make sure we get top four and consolidate this Champions League spot. Um, whereabouts do you think that they'll finish? Well, I think we'll finish third. I think that's because of the consistency that Conte showed. Well, Conte's team showed at the end of the season, but most importantly, the way Conte wanted to set up. We got our strongest 11 um, and we've only went and strengthened the depth. I don't think Champions League is going to be an issue because 
we can now fill an entire second team, essentially. Uh, we've got backups for every position, which is perfect going into a strong Champions League campaign. And there's lots of depth where I think can come into the Premier League and do a job. Where, whereas closing the gap to Liverpool and City, it ultimately depends for me on if Liverpool and Man City stumble a bit this season. I do think both teams have, while they have strengthened, they've also weakened in areas. Um, it's going to be about whether or not they can maintain that kind of form that they've, they've both teams have displayed last season. Maybe Spurs can capitalise on any potential slips. You know, with Liverpool, Mane was such an integral part when particularly if Salah was off form, you've got Mane scoring. When, you know, if Liverpool are having a bad game, what's been brilliant about them the last few seasons is that they still find a goal out of nowhere. The question mark now for me is whether or not Salah can, um, if, if Salah's having an off day, whether or not Nunes or Diaz or someone else can step up. And it's a very similar question with Man City. If Haaland's having a, a bad day, can you can you get... Um, Mares, Foden, Grish consistently step up. It's it's going to be interesting, and you know I don't think that they are going to slip up as as much as Spurs would hope for. Um, but I think Spurs' hope, any any hope that they have for a Premier League title or even just a trophy this year is a slip up from Liverpool, Man City. But third should be the target, should be the aim, and I'm hoping will be quite comfortable. That That's just my hope anyway. So up next, it's Arsenal, who finished fifth last season, narrowly missing out on a Champions League spot, and their representative is Matt Dawson, a football writer and Arsenal fan. So, Matt, I want to start with a kind of general question about Arsenal's trajectory, really. Would you agree that Arsenal are sort of taking a different approach to the likes of, of Chelsea and Spurs. Those two teams seem like they want to win now based on their sort of transfer activity. Whereas Arsenal look like they're maybe plotting more of a long-term title bid. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. I think since Mikel Arteta came in, it, it has been all about that kind of project and, you know, trust in the process that's there. It, it's been a it's been a long journey to to kind of get where we are. We're still nowhere near kind of challenging for the title, but you can see that the the building blocks are certainly in place. Um, you know, Spurs, although they've signed a couple of young players, there are older heads in there, and, and you know Chelsea are doing sort of similar with Sterling and Koulibaly players like that. But Arsenal over the last sort of eighteen months have, have very much been about bringing in those those younger players who you know perhaps aren't quite ready at the moment, but hopefully in in a couple of years, um, they will be ready. I think last season, Arsenal often fielded the youngest 11 in the Premier League, which I think, you know, it, it shows that there is a clear strategy there. Um, whether or not it will work is is probably another question, but I think Arsenal fans have, have been encouraged by the younger faces that have been coming in. Um, you know, I think they, they're, they're more relatable to the fan. Um and they've Arsenal certainly got a, a more likable squad than you know the, the final years of Wenger and and when Unai Emery was here as well. So yeah, it's certainly a different strategy. Um, you know, it didn't pay off last season as as we finished fifth, but I think there are some promising building blocks there for sure. Yeah, I think what's interesting is you know you had really a period of sustained period of kind of hit and miss recruitment, I would say, and. Now it seems a bit more like there is kind of that coherent model in place that you kind of want to see from a top side. And the hit rate, I think, has improved quite markedly as well, even when there's been players who maybe externally people have been a bit unsure about coming in. They've you know tended to do a pretty good job once they've arrived. So to look at sort of this summer, obviously, you know, you mentioned the young profile of the squad and definitely the thing about the average age. I think it was, you know, by a decent distance and um, the youngest over the course of the season. You've got Jesus and Zinchenko have come in. I think they're both 25. Um, Marquinhos, the winger, who, who I think is 19, and Fabio Vieira, too, um, who, who I want to say is 21. So do you think those signings will go a long way towards making you a contender eventually? You know, specifically, obviously, the main three, because Marquinhos is still a bit, still quite raw. Um, and do you think, because I was speaking to an Arsenal fan about this the other day, 
do you think that this is a squad that still needs its Van Dyke, Salah, Allison, that kind of game changer who takes it over the top, or has that player potentially already arrived? Yeah, I think that's the the final point you make there is, is quite an interesting one actually. Um, you know, we've we have spent a fair bit of money, but we haven't you know absolutely broke it broke the bank. You know, as as Liverpool did for for the Allisons and Van Dykes that that you signed. Um, I think ultimately that the key was Jesus. Um, whether or not he's going to be that kind of twenty goal a season striker that Arsenal need kind of remains up in the air. But he had an amazing preseason. Um, and to be honest, anybody anybody other than Lacazette was was going to be was going to be a positive for Arsenal fans. Um, he was pretty dreadful last season, so yeah, to see Jesus come in, I think he could certainly be one of those game changers. Um, he's got a, a massive high ceiling, um, still not quite in his prime either. So you know that's that's quite an exciting one. Um, we've got the likes of of Erdegaard and Saka in there who. Who could be those big players and and Saliba as well? You know, there's there's a lot of hype around him. Um, whether whether he kind of lives up to that potential remains to be seen. But he is that kind of Van Dyke figure that you mentioned. Um, you know, he could eventually be mentioned in the same sort of bracket as that. There is the hope that he will become that kind of elite centre back. So yeah, I mean, Arsenal have kind of bought potential really, rather than the kind of well well-established names um so yeah we'll, we'll see where it gets them um but yeah there's there's certainly a lot of potential in that squad um I, I i do think arsenal need a few more players to really you know put themselves in the conversation to be you know back back running for the title but yeah providing things go to plan this season um arsenal can then put a few more building blocks in over the next few years i think yeah obviously you have Jesus and and like you say, can he get to that kind of twenty goal mark? Um, and really, you've kind of only needed sort of low twenties to be in, in Golden Boot contention in recent years. We'll see if that kind of changes this season. But I was looking this morning for an article I was writing at Arsenal's top scorers last season, and I think I think Saka was actually top with only about sort of twelve, thirteen goals, um, which kind of says a lot about the need really for that goal scorer. So can Jesus be that? And I think um, on Saliba as well, it's interesting because he arrived quite a while ago, but will sort of feel like a new signing in a way, almost like Gallagher at Chelsea in some respects, um, because, you know, he, he hasn't really had that opportunity yet. And I think he was the, the young player of the season in, in Liga and last year, which is obviously a very good sign um, about his potential, like you say. Um, so if all these young players that you mentioned continue to improve, when do you think we might sort of begin to think about Arsenal in that title conversation again. And I think the crucial question really is, can Mikel Arteta be the man who takes you to that level? Have you seen enough up to this point to have that confidence in him? Yeah, there's there's a lot made about Arteta. Um, you know, towards the end of the season, we we ended up beating Chelsea and, and we, 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 we had a really good run against some of the top teams, but then we lost those three games in a row. Um, I think it was Palace, Brighton and, and maybe Southampton in there where, you know, there were huge concerns about was Arteta's vision, you know, the right one. Um, but, you know, just to touch on this summer again, the players he's bringing in is to kind of stop that rut from happening again, where we had a few players out injured and, you know, beyond the starting eleven, we didn't really have much. Um, so I think the building blocks are being put in place there to, you know, have as much depth as possible. That's that's what City have been doing. That's what Liverpool have been doing. So I think it will take, you know, it certainly won't happen this season, probably won't happen next season. But, you know, in a couple of years, I'd like to say that the Arsenal are going to be in that conversation again. But the key is obviously getting into the Champions League places. Um, I feel Saka could sign a new contract this season, but, you know, the longer we're outside of, of kind of Europe's elite table, these these younger players will eventually go in search of, you know, trophies and, and Champions League football and stuff like that. So, you know, the process now does need to be sped up. Champions League football um, at the end of this season is an absolute must. Um, so first and foremost, that's that's obviously the priority and the focus. I don't think Arsenal fans are expecting us to, you know, be in a conversation this season. But yeah, in, in a few more years, I think that's when we may start to see Arsenal, you know, challenging a bit more. Um, I don't think anybody's going to get close to Liverpool City for a, for a good few years. So 
Um, yeah, I think that should kind of be the time frame Arsenal are looking for at the moment. And it's interesting, really, because obviously, you know, Liverpool had this 30-year wait, which, you know, everyone talked about to, to you know, sort of between titles, really. But with Arsenal now, it is really going to be, you know, with the time frame you mentioned there, it's going to be at least 20 years between titles. So, you know, I guess at some point there will be that expectation, you know, for a club of, of this size to, to be very much back in that conversation. Um, but looking at sort of this season, really, and the short term, after talking quite a lot about the long term so far, we saw Arsenal and City, you know, they lost by heavy margins away against Liverpool and Man City. Um, and I think the Liverpool game, you know, they were it was pretty close in the first half. Liverpool just pulled away in the second. But in the home games, uh, we saw... City and Liverpool have to work much, much harder um, to beat Arsenal than they have in the past. So on the basis of those performances, plus, you know, the fact that you've strengthened the summer, do you think that this year you can actually take points off those kind of big two teams, if you like? And, and will that maybe make Arsenal a factor in the title race without necessarily competing for the trophy themselves? Yeah, I, th- I think quite possibly. Um, I mean, that that away form has still been... A massive problem for us. Um, I think under Arteta, kind of in the last year or so, we have improved a little bit away from home, but there's still those kind of nights under the lights, you know, on a Friday, Monday, where we we just seem to struggle. I'm not sure what it is, whether it's some kind of mentality issue within the squad. Um, You know, that's why I'm kind of dreading Crystal Palace on Friday for that very reason. But yeah, as you said, at home to those those bigger sides, that's where we have seemed to improve. in those big games, we always just seemed to roll over and it was just kind of a, a foregone conclusion that Arsenal would lose. But yeah, I was I remember I was I was at that Liverpool game last season and and for much of the first half, um, we, we seemed to be all over you. Um, and I think we, we did have our best kind of 11 out that day. Um, but then in the end, it was, you know, a, two bits of quality. I think it was from Liverpool that, that eventually won them the game. And, you know, from what was a really positive first half, Arsenal then kind of, did, we're up to their kind of usual tricks in the second half, bit of a lapse in concentration and stuff like that. So, you know, a lot's been made about the younger squad and that they'll have those kind of off days. But I do think on our day with the strongest 11 and at home, Arsenal can beat quite a lot of sides. Um, you know, I, I couldn't say for certain that we'll take points off the top teams, but there's definitely a lot more hope going into those into those games at home that, you know, we're not quite as fearful anymore. Um, so yeah, perhaps perhaps we will take points in those games. Um, ultimately, I think what will be key in the top four for Arsenal is you know winning those away games against you know, the, the smaller sides that, that are down in in the in the bottom half of the table. So I think that that will probably be the biggest priority. You know, if, if Arsenal can win on Friday at Palace after losing there quite. Um, quite quite brutally really last season then I think that'll be a real marker of how far Arsenal come Yeah definitely and sort of on the kind of City and Liverpool angle I remember obviously the game last season and and the circumstances in which City won was a real obviously a good punch not, not just for Arsenal fans but for the Liverpool fans watching as well and I think that'll be a game this season if we do kind of have similar dynamics in the title race that Liverpool fans look at and say, right, this is a really big opportunity for City to stumble. And obviously, likewise, City the same. And it's interesting how that's changed from the past, where maybe everyone would kind of go into expecting a heavy a heavy defeat for Arsenal. There was certainly an area where that was maybe the case. But um, just one last question then, as, we, as we've been asking everyone in the podcast, where do you think Arsenal will finish this season if you had to make a prediction? Because obviously it was such a disappointing end to last season with some of the results against kind of mid-table teams costing you the, the top four finish, which you kind of looked destined to get for a large part of the season. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it is it is quite tricky to pin down where, where Arsenal will finish just because that the competition for top four is, is so wide open, you know, will, will United do anything under 10 Hag now they've changed managers and stuff? I'm, I think, you know, they'll be in a similar position to Arsenal. It'll be a bit of a longer-term project there. I think they'll probably miss out on top four. Chelsea aren't looking in the best place either. Um, I think they've had a bit of a, a funny 
a funny transfer window, a funny summer with, with new owners and stuff like that. Um, so I think Tottenham may well be the kind of biggest threat to Arsenal. I think Spurs will definitely finish in the top four. Um, and then I think Arsenal will just about get that fourth place. I don't think they'll go any higher. Um, I think it will it will depend on, you know, how fit certain players can stay. Um, because as I mentioned, if, if a couple of players drop out, then, you know, the squad is, is still a little bit thinner. So, you know, there's still a month left of the window. If Arsenal can bring in one or two extra players, I'd be very, very confident about getting getting top four. Um, but yeah, if, if I was put on the spot, I'd say fourth is, is probably where I'd predict Arsenal at the moment. And finally, we come to Manchester United, the team who finished sixth uh, last season. And with me is James Ridge, who's an editor at the United Stand. So there's only really one place to start, James, um, and that's with, with the change in manager. So obviously we saw Ralph Ranjik in there for the second half of, of last season after Ali left. And then now Ten Hag's come in. It's kind of been building up for a long time, uh, that appointment. So... I guess, just how good do you think he is compared to the likes of Klopp and Guardiola who, who sort of set the standard? Because it can be hard to gauge, I suppose, given that he hasn't been maybe in one of the top five leagues. Um, I think you've hit the nail on the head there completely. I think it, it'd be wrong of me to even begin to compare him to those two. You know, They're by far and away the two best managers in the world at the minute. Um, obviously, Ten Hag's got... A lot of he's got a lot of managerial ability. He's shown that at Ajax. Um, it'll be interesting to see if he can replicate that at other clubs. But you know the the, the potential's there. I know he's he's not a young manager. He's the same age as Pep. Don't get me wrong, but the the potential is there if he gets the back in. If he gets the the players he wants, you know, the, if he's allowed to build a squad like Klopp and Guardiola have been allowed to do over the last couple of years, I think he could enter that realm one day but don't get me wrong he's a mile off it at the minute but he's still exciting for United fans you know we've gone from Oli who you know I liked but he was never going to get us to that level Ranić, who it was just a disaster from start to finish so it's nice to have a bit of optimism at least yeah and it's it's probably a case of like Ten Hag maybe being in that sort of managerial bracket behind Klopp and Guardiola who are you know arguably like you say on a level of their own that maybe he, he is just in, in that sort of next group, which is obviously still really strong. But to pick up on something you kind of touched on there, what have you made of the recruitment so far this summer? Because obviously we have seen a few players come in, but it also seems on paper, or certainly to me, that there's a couple of key areas there, so defensive midfield and, and probably the striker departments that haven't been addressed. And all the focus seems to be on this kind of Frankie de Jong saga, which is just dragging on week to week. Yeah, this is, we, we've signed some decent players. I think it's been an all right window so far. I, 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 Martinez wouldn't have been my first choice if Ten Hag wasn't coming in, but obviously he knows the player through and through. So I'll, I'll back him on that. And then Malassia and Eriksson both look like good arrivals already. Obviously, it's only friendlies they're playing in, but they already look like they're up to speed and, and gelling well. But yeah, like you said, for years now, we've overlooked his defensive midfielder position. It's been something that's been going on for, for a while now. We're we just completely ne- negligent towards it. And now you, you then lose Paul Pogba as well, so you need at least one midfielder, and we've not even signed, we, we've not signed one yet. Um, putting all our eggs in the in the De Jong basket, which is worrying because it's looking sort of less likely every day. So, yeah, the, midfield is the absolute priority, and I think if we don't get Frankie De Jong, we're we, we're in for a very difficult season. And obviously the Ronaldo stuff that's going on, whether you want him to stay or not, you you can't expect him to lead at the front line on his own. So I think. You need to get someone in for behind him as well. So, yeah, you, you nailed it perfectly there. We, we're still missing a midfielder and a striker to be challenging for that top four position at the minute. Well, that that's interesting, really. And we'll, we'll come on to sort of where United are at um, sort of in their level at the moment. I think, you know, what you say about De Jong, it's just a case of, you know, how effective is the recruitment operation at, at Old Trafford, really, because we've kind of seen it year on year where things seem to tail into the, the back end of the window really and almost sort of coming down to those final days whereas certainly you know you look at Liverpool uh, this summer for example um, I've got all their business done very early so you kind of worry maybe a little bit if the same kind of problems are cropping up but um, to again pick up on something you've alluded to yourself um, we obviously have to talk about it the Ronaldo situation kind of put on a, a bit of a cloud um, you'd say over 
Ten Hag's preparations for his first season at the club. He's made it very clear for, you know, a good two or three weeks now, I think, that that he wants to leave the club. Um, whereas United seem like they want to keep him and, and they want to make sure he honours the contract that he signed um, when he came back last year. My sort of thinking on this, though, and I don't know if you agree, is that if you keep someone like Ronaldo around um, and he wants to leave the club, then do you think that he might be a bit of a toxic presence and might sort of generally actually drag United down a little bit in that sense? Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with you. I think it's in everyone's best interest to to let him leave. I think it's a bit embarrassing on both sides, both United and Ronaldo. The fact that United seems so desperate to keep a player that doesn't want to be there is, is embarrassing in itself. But for Ronaldo, the fact that he's sort of proposing his services to every club in Europe and nobody wants him, which in itself, uh, for someone who's won the Ballon d'Or five times, that's a bit embarrassing for him. But yeah, the status and power that Ronaldo already has at the club if he's not happy there, if we keep him this season and he doesn't want to be there, it's not going to be difficult for him to start to get players on on board to, to make that dressing room a pretty toxic environment, which it already was last season. We're trying to grow out of that. We're trying to rebuild it. It looks all right so far from what we've seen from pre-season. You know, it seems pretty harmonious. Eric Ten Hag's got everyone singing from the same hymn sheet if interviews are to be believed. But that can very easily crumble if someone as powerful as Ronaldo doesn't want to be there anymore. If, if he decides he doesn't want to make this an enjoyable workplace, then it's very easy for him to say, you know, to lead a revolution. Yeah, and it's interesting, really, what you say about United really trying to hold on to him when maybe it isn't in their best interest to do that. And I think the fact that you have these clubs in Europe who, yes, probably... There's a lot of them who would be interested if they could afford his wages. But but those who can and those who can pay the kind of Ronaldo money maybe seem hesitant on the basis of his kind of limitations as a, as a player these days in terms of he doesn't really do much or, or anything off the ball. And I think we maybe saw that with Chelsea where Todd Bowley was negotiating for him. Um, and I think Thomas Tuchel actually said no. And, and maybe it was to do with him kind of whilst being an effective goal scorer, being a bit of a, a passenger out of possession. Um, but to come on to the sort of more general um, sides of it now and kind of where United are at, where do you see United ending up this season? Obviously, it's hard to say now because clearly, like we said, the recruitment isn't complete. But maybe you could sort of do it in terms of if you get who they want and if they don't. Um, so I'm going to ask you for a position. And I also am keen to know what you think the mood is like at the club. Because you said earlier, it's quite optimistic, but there also must be some kind of frustration with some of the things that are going on transfers wise yeah obviously it's it's, it's a bit of a, a middle ground at the minute we're in a bit of a gray area where there's excitement for what could happen but there's also this there's a realism that united fans have developed i feel like over the last 10 years where it's hard to really get excited about anything because it's like we're not we're not at that level anymore and it's going to take a gargantuan effort to get to that level so uh, there's sort of an acceptance that these next couple of years under Ten Hag aren't going to be title challenging. So it, it was, there's an acceptance it's not going to go well, but there's that excitement at the same time, if that makes sense. But back to your first question, I think if all goes well, if we get Frankie de Jong in, get in a backup striker, sell Ronaldo as well, because I think that will be beneficial to us. There's no reason why we can't come third or fourth. I think we're still way off City and Liverpool, don't get me wrong, but I think with the manager we have, with he's got a window bringing in players that he wants. I think we could challenge these Spurs and Arsenal and Chelsea sides that will be revitalised again this season. But, you know, if we're getting towards the end of the window, De Jong's not come in yet. We start panicking, getting a random midfielder that he probably didn't want. You know, Ronaldo stays. I think it will be another, we're competing with West Ham sort of thing. You know, we scraped into sixth on the last day with West Ham losing. That's how desperate last season was. So I think we, we're in for a similar season to that. The football might be a little bit better, but, you know, Ten Hag's not a magician. These are players that completely down tools last season, showed the, the, the true value of who they can be as players. And I think if the season starts off in the wrong way, we could be in for a, a similar season to that. Yeah, so a lot of potential really for it to go either way. And that kind of shows how it is difficult to, to predict on the eve of a season with um, the transfer window running on it a few weeks longer but yeah I guess right now it, it could very much go either way um, 
So you mentioned the gap to sort of Liverpool and City, and I think everyone kind of agrees that this season that's not really a target in terms of you know closing that gap to to a large degree. But can you give maybe an estimate in your mind of how long you think it'll be before United can challenge those two teams, or do you think? it's kind of really too hard to say because there are so many variables in terms of who comes in, how successful they are. And also, like we said at the top, really, how good the manager Ten Hag proves to be at Premier League level. Yeah, so sort of what you said there, it's difficult to say. I think realistically, I'll use City as a basis because I think Klopp's, Klopp and Liverpool are still overachieving, you know, with, with the squad depth that they've got and, and the players that they've got compared to City's. I think to, for anyone to be competing with City is a ridiculous achievement. So... Fair play to Klopp on that. But to get on City's level, you, you're looking at signing two world-class players in every position like City have got. You're looking at years of stability and, and state-of-the-art work behind the scenes, which City have had over the last 10 years. Um, and I just don't... Uh, that's almost impossible for any team. So I think unless something goes wrong with City, it's going to be very difficult for us to catch them anyway. But, listen, stranger things have happened. And I think Ten Hag knows the team he wants. He's got a very set style of play which has been successful in Europe so it's sort of proven in that sense so if he is backed as he should be if we get it right off the field we've had a lot of issues off the field with with staff and the quality of our coaching and all that so if that can get moving in the right direction then you know we could be a couple of years off competing I think that that's assuming every summer window goes right as well there's no guarantee of that um but yeah, don't get me wrong, it's at least a couple of years before even in the conversation of competing in an ideal world. So I don't think Liverpool or City fans have got too much to worry about just yet. Yeah, I think I remember Ranjik saying something about, um, I want to say he said it would only be like three transfer windows in an absolutely ideal situation because it's like, it's one of them where it's almost never as good as you think, but also never as bad as you think. Um, and if everything goes right and everyone's kind of pulling in the same direction, which is the big question mark, I think, with United, then, then maybe it could um, be relatively short-term before United can compete. But um, that is about going to wrap us up for this episode because you've now heard from fans of all five of the other clubs in the Big Six, and we'll pop links to all of their Twitter profiles in the episode description. This is only part one of our two-part season preview, so make sure you also check out our Liverpool-focused episode where we offer our own predictions for the new season. But that's going to be all for this particular episode, so thanks for listening.